Is God transcendent? Or is he eminent? Now, maybe that title doesn't make you say, Wow, I'm glad I came this morning. But I think by the end, you'll say that. This is a crucial message. One that the church needs to understand. What makes a great church? We thought about that question last week. And that's the subject again this morning. We talked about it last week. Numbers, is that what makes a great church? Hundreds of people, thousands of people. The social status of the church, is that what makes it a great church? The wealth Material wealth of a congregation, is that what makes it a great church? Those characteristics are often sought by the church as being valid indicators. They are not, not at all. A great church, we saw last week, will always be a place where the word of God is preached in power. The power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, not the power of the minister. We saw last week that <clears throat> Paul charged Timothy, charged Timothy, didn't instruct him, but charged Timothy. He stood Timothy before God and he said, I charge you, Timothy, before God. And he didn't stop there. I charge you, Timothy, before God and Christ. And by the way, these were the last words written by Paul to Timothy. The last words. The last words have meaning and power. What were his last words? He said, I charge you, Timothy, before God and before Christ, you preach the word. Well, why is that so important that the church be consumed with this, that ministers be consumed with it, that the session be consumed with it, that the congregation be consumed with it? Because we saw last week, in the word of God, there is salvation. There's no other word. There's no other place you can go but the word of God and find salvation. And he said, Timothy, your salvation depends on it and the salvation of those people who hear you. And then he added something else. He said, it's not only about salvation for you and your hearers that the word of God is to be preached, but the word of God is to be preached because it completely equips you, it completely equips the hearer to live a happy and godly life in every possible area of one existence. There's no part of your existence that the Word of God does not address. It brings order to your life. The theology of the Word of God. There was a time in my life I'd been a Christian for a long time. Been a Christian for 15, 16, 17 years. But when I met, when, when I, what we call now the Reformed faith, is nothing more than orthodox Christian doctrine. When I encountered it, it turned everything in my life upside down. 
everything. Nothing remained the same. And that's what it does. It, it changes every aspect of our lives. It orders our lives. Well, we take up that theme again this morning. What makes a great church? In answering that question, <clears throat> let me first ask you this question. What's the chief end of the church? What is the first priority of the church? Do you know what it is? The first priority of the church is worship. Worship. Calvin, John Calvin, made a unique and powerful statement when he wrote Charles V about the Reformation. He said that the chief priority of the Christian faith was worship. He said the second priority was salvation. Now you say, hold it, you got that backwards. It should be salvation and then worship. No. Calvin explained, salvation is a means to an end. Worship is that end. Salvation brings us to worship. God's great work of salvation, what does it do? God's great work of salvation brings us back to our original purpose. God said, I'm bringing you back to do what you were created to do, worship. We were created to seek God above anything else in all of life. We were created to worship God in every aspect of our lives. Think about it this way. Why did God make the sun? The sun was created to give light and heat to the earth. The, the sun was made to hold the solar system in order in exactly the same way. Man was created to worship God. The, if the sun did not give light and heat to the earth, if it did not bring order to the solar system, it would not be doing what God created it to do. If we don't give worship to God, if we don't give worship to God, then we are not doing what God created us to do. Salvation takes us to the first priority of the church. Do you know the main difference? Do you know the main difference between you and your neighbor that lives next to you that's not a Christian, hadn't been born again, does not know God? Do you know what the main difference is? You love God. He doesn't. You worship God. He doesn't. That's the main difference. Salvation brings worship for the first time. There's been a great push in the church, inside the church, to elevate mission. Now listen to me. This is important. This is happening. This has been happening as popular in the evangelical church today. There's been a great push to elevate mission and evangelism above worship. Don't you dare do that. 
The church that succumbs to that temptation will get the proverbial cart before the horse. I believe that what Christ Presbyterian Church does in her worship here on the Lord's Day is her most important activity and will profoundly affect everything else. What's the greatest commandment? What is it? It's not go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's not the great commandment. What did Jesus say? He asked, the question was asked explicitly, and he answered explicitly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the first commandment, and it's the priority of the church. You say, well, why the question? What is, what is God being transcendent or eminent have to do with this? Is God transcendent or eminent? Our response to that question will determine how we worship. Worship the most important thing in the church. Answering that question is the single most important because it determines how we will worship. What's the word transcendent mean? It simply means surpassing all usual limits, surpassing the limits of this physical world, out of this physical world. We use the phrase, we'll say Tiger Woods is transcendent as a golfer, and he is. Never saw another golfer like him. And that's a limited use of the word transcendent. But when we use the word, in the most expressive way of truth. Transcendent means surpassing all limits, surpassing the limits of this physical world, existing apart and not subject to the limitations of the material universe. Transcendent. The Bible says there's only one transcendent. God, Jehovah, Yahweh. God is holy, set apart from all else. One transcendent above all creation. Now, eminence is just the opposite. Eminence is being within the limits of the physical universe. Being within the limits of experience and knowledge. When something is eminent, it's close to you. It's near you. It's right there. You know where the word eminence comes from? In Isaiah 7.14, it's there on your scripture sheet, we read this prophecy. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. It's made up of two words, El, God, and Emmanu. You know what Emmanu means? With us, close. That's where we get our word, you know, eminence. It's from the word Emmanuel. As we think 
of God's eminence, his closeness. I want to take you to two scenes in the life of the Apostle John. In John 13, 21 to 25, we didn't read this this morning. We read about John's experience in Revelation. We'll come to that in a minute. But John 13, 21 to 25, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? This scene takes place in the upper room. Now, always with Scripture, when we're reading about an action in Scripture, in this world, when we're reading gospel, something where, where Jesus is active, bring it down into real life. See it as it is. When you look at this scene, it's in the upper room where Jesus initiates the Lord's Supper. It's a powerful scene. It's a scene of intimate friendship. It says they reclined at table. Now, the usual posture at meal, even in that day, at a meal, was sitting. But at special meals, like the Passover that they were celebrating that, that evening, at special meals like the Passover, the Jews had adopted a Hellenistic custom, a Greek custom, of reclining on mats at a low table. It was a very relaxed position. It was If a meal was going to be a long meal, a friendly meal, a rich time of fellowship, that's when they would not sit, but they would recline. They would usually lean on their left arm, radiating their feet, would radiate away from the table. Jesus had just there at that table in that intimate setting these, these, with these 12 men. There were 13 of Jesus and these 12 men. And he said, one of you will betray me. Imagine the drama of that. They were stunned. Who would do such a thing? These men had been together for three years. Peter signals John. To ask Jesus, who is it? Now the ESV, our translation that we use this morning, says John was reclining at table at Jesus' side. That's a bad translation. That's not what it says. The Greek actually says that he was reclining at Jesus' chest. Now, these men were you know, reclining at the table. Here was Jesus, here was John, and John. They were, they were close. In the Greek word there is kopo. I think the translators, you know, the King James gets this right, by the way. Gets it absolutely right. It says it. But I think that modern translators, we have a habit of saying, you know, that just doesn't sound right. And I think they're afraid of the connotation of homosexuality. And so they don't say it. They don't. They said, at Jesus' side. He wasn't at Jesus' side. 
Leaned against his chest. That's what the Greek says. And then, and then he says it again. Look at verse 25. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now that word, leaning back against Jesus, that's not what it says. It's the Greek word stethos, from which we get the word stethoscope. What do you do with the stethoscope? You listen to your chest. Listen to your heart. It's, it's the Greek word for chest. He, re, he leans back against Jesus, and he says in a whisper, you can see it. Makes sense. Say, who is it? Who is it? This is Emmanuel, God with us. John knew the eminence of God in Christ. There was a closeness with Christ. John had traveled with Christ, with Jesus. He had been in Jesus' home and Jesus had been in his home. They had studied together. They had prayed together. They had eaten together. They had fished together. As we think of eminence, we can go to another scene out of the life of John. In John 19, at Golgotha, it's there on your scripture sheet, verses 26 and 27. Jesus looks at his mother and he says, Behold your son. He was talking about John. He was saying to her, Look at him as your son. He said, John, behold your mother. He was saying, John. Take care of her like you would your mother. Again, we're seeing Jesus, Emmanuel. There was a relationship like that. Now, he was like that. You know, the disciples, you know, he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. It was a personal, close relationship. What was the last words? What were the last words Jesus spoke in the Gospel of Matthew? The very last words Jesus spoke to the disciples. What were they? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He was speaking to the church. Speaking to us. He was speaking to Christ Presbyterian. I'm with you always. What did we say this morning? We've come to meet with him. There's a nearness of Christ that we experience not just in church, not just when we come to the table. There's a nearness to Christ that we ex experience in our daily lives. When I wrote this this week, I thought of my friend Becky Bennett. Her husband, she and her husband were friends. He was a fellow student of, with me in seminary. He was a year behind me. He had just been killed on a highway in South Georgia. Becky and her infant daughter had miraculously been spared. No serious injuries. They were far away from home, South Georgia. And here... A few people stopped on the side of the highway. Ralph, her husband, his body was in the car. And she knew he was gone. 
Somebody handed her Colette, her infant daughter, and she hugged her. And she looked at the people. She didn't know anyone. And through the tears, she said, is anyone here a Christian? And there was a 17-year-old girl that raised her hand and said, I am. Becky looked at her and said, I need you. That little girl, 17 years old, got her to the hospital, sat with her all afternoon through the evening, sat with her, sat with her, sat with Colette, cared for her. You know what Becky said about that? Becky said, John, it was remarkable. She said, I knew Ralph was gone, but I also knew that Jesus was there, and he had someone there for me. As believers, you and I both know we experience the eminence and the care of Christ. We adore Christ. We're going to come to this table in a few minutes, and it's about the eminence of Jesus. We adore Christ. We love Christ. Why? For what he's done for us. He died for us. How will the Father not also, if he gave us his Son, how will he not also with him give us all things? So, God's eminent. And there's a side of the church today that that's all they want to talk about. God's eminence, God's grace, God's eminence, that's grace. Their church has always swung back and forth between two pendulums. Here's eminence, here's his transcendence. And sometimes the church is swayed back over on the side of transcendence. And they hadn't talked about the grace of God and the eminence of God. And it's been lost. And that's bad. But it's just as bad. It's a terrible thing. To be over here and to say, yes, Jesus is so eminent. And this is just swept across the evangelical church today. We're in the midst of it today. It's the age of the eminence and grace of God. And that sounds good, doesn't it? But let me tell you, there's a transcendence that has been lost. And you can walk in congregations all across, evangelical congregations all across the country. And you can't find the holiness of God. You can't find the transcendence of God. How important is transcendence? You want to see it? John got the balance right. Look at Revelation 1, 12 through 18. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining at full strength. In other words, it was blinding. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. John was one of the closest friends Jesus had on earth. We've just come from the scenes where John was reclining at the Passover supper. 
Yet in this scene, the man that had leaned against his breast and whispered, Who is it, Jesus? In this scene in Revelation, John didn't run to him and hug him and say, Jesus, Jesus, I have missed you. He fell at his feet as though he were dead. Why? Why? Because he was seeing the risen, glorified, transcendent Jesus. That's what you see in Revelation. Revelation is the story of Jesus Christ after the ascension. When he's risen, when you see him as the son of man and son of God in eternity. What happened? What happened when he arrived in glory? You see the ascension. He tells the disciples, lo, I'm with you always, even in the age. And then he begins to ascend. Well, Revelation shows us the picture of what happens after the ascension. We see it most clearly in chapter 5, where the Ancient of Days, God the Father's on this throne, and he's got this scroll, this huge scroll. And it's the deed to all of heaven and all of earth. Who's the owner? Who can open the scroll? And the line of Judah, the Lamb of God, steps forth and takes the scroll. This is a transcendent Jesus. This is a transcendent Christ. And what happens? What happens in heaven when that happens? Worship happens. Look at Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And they sang, you want to see what heaven, what happened in heaven? At the end of it, when, when Christ ascended, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests. That's why I called us all priests. Priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then skip down to verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's what they sang to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then verse 13. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's what we're to be doing every Sunday. Every Sunday. That's our worship. Not only experiencing the eminence of Christ, but knowing that we're before the transcendent Christ of glory. In the scriptures, wherever God appears in all of his transcendent glory, the response is always the same. It's not, hi God, how are you? How are things going? There is a reverence. There is a Holy reverence, a righteous fear. If you were received a notice this week that in a month, the 1st of March, 
that you were to meet with the Queen of England. You would be sent a manual of protocol. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do in the presence of the Queen. Well, let me tell you, there is no manual needed when the God of heaven and earth comes on the scene in all of his glory. There was only one thing to do, to do what Isaiah did. Read Isaiah 6. The train of God's robe filled the temple. Just the train of his robe. And Isaiah fell on his face. Woe is me. John sees the glory of the risen Christ and he falls on his face. But just in case we don't understand, when God is present, and he doesn't reveal the fullness of his glory, he still demands reverence. Hopefully you know something of his presence here this morning but nothing like the fullness that occurred on the Mount of Transfiguration or occurred with John on the island of Patmos. But that same reverence is demanded. You see, we're not just a people gathered to think about God, to think about what he did. We've come to meet with him. Blake talked about this week on, about this this week on Thursday morning in the study of Hebrews 12. He, he talked about worship, and we read Hebrews 12:8. It's there on your scripture sheet. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. You want to offer God acceptable worship? You want to be like the writer of it? Let's, let us. Isn't that a good idea? Let us offer God acceptable worship. And then he says what acceptable worship is. Look at it. With reverence and awe. Are you in awe this morning of the God? We sang. Now let me read one more verse. Thursday evening, we heard R.C. quote Leviticus 10.3. When not the writer of Hebrews was speaking, but God himself. And God said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. I read that and it strikes fear in me. I mean real fear. Because it says to me, John Sartell, does your worship prove God to be holy? The way you worship will tell the world about the God you I pray that your worship will speak about the eminence of God, the closeness of God, that you adore him for what he's done. I pray that our worship will also be filled with righteous fear, with reverence for God is holy and you do not trifle with him. We sang this morning, we began, and I did this purposely. One of the great hymns 
praising God and his transcendence is immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. We're responding not just to what God has done, we're responding to whom he is. Responding to who he is. Next Sunday, I already know the hymn that we will that will open our worship. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song will rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That's a hymn about transcendence. When we sing that hymn, we're figuratively falling on our faces before God. Two weeks ago, we prayed this prayer and our invocation. I'm just going to read the last sentence of it. Open our eyes to see you this morning, that our passion would prove the reality of your grace, that our passion would prove the reality that Christ has died for our sins, that our passion, that our love would adore this table, and then we finish the sentence, and that our reverence would prove the weight of your glory and majesty. Does your reverence this morning, does our reverence this morning prove the weight of God's glory? Our hymn.